Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I always try to avoid excessive temporal specificity. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind, the usual crew. It's great to see you all. So we were going to talk about the fun and uplifting subject of uh, anti-Semitic violence, of which there has been a number of recent incidents in the New York City area. I um, am Jewish enough and aware enough of the news to have like seen this happening and have the opinion that it was bad and have like Ooh. extra feelings about my Hanukkah menorah this this past uh, holidays. But I I didn't really actually know that much about what was happening until I read a piece Jane wrote, right. and it's weirder than I had realized. Yeah, I think it's important, we were just talking about how it's important to put the rise of anti-Semitic hate crimes, crimes generally against Orthodox Jews and Hasidic Jews, worth noting that that should be put in context, because a couple of members of Congress have put this into the, you know, the breakdown of law and order in our cities. It's not part of a breakdown of law and order in our cities. Violent crime in New York City and in other major cities is down. Crimes against Jewish people is up. And so, but I think at the that, same time, this is something distinct from yes. you know. I think that as I, I think that both. Uh, well, I'm not going to speak for Matt here, but I personally am probably going to say a lot of things that may or may not be representative of all Jews in America in this episode. But it seems to me that the specter of anti-Semitic violence that has you know been a more real presence in the kind of like mental landscape that American Jews like you know the risk that American Jews have felt they're under has been, for the most part, white nationalism. Right. And so this is a distinct phenomenon from that and one that has, that kind of scrambles the politics of that in interesting ways. Well, also distinct groups of Jews, yes, right? So, exactly. so So Dara and I and uh, probably most Jewish Weeds listeners are from the more secular to reform side of American Jewishness, have more liberal politics, um, had a lot of concern about white nationalist, anti-Semitism, um, a lot of sort of personal affiliation with the Tree of Life synagogue and the dynamic around that. But we are talking about attacks that have been perpetrated against uh, Orthodox and Hasidic Jews right. in New York area who themselves tend to be more, much more politically conservative, uh, also are more outwardly visibly identifiable right. as Jewish uh, through their their garb and have in this case been targeted Specific. by a distinct – targeted specifically, but also targeted by a totally different group of people. Yes. Right. And uh, it seems to be – I mean, one thing I think it's important to get is that, like, there isn't some sort of better anti-Semitic violence. White nationalist <laughs> violence is not superior to anti-Semitic violence committed by people of color. There's not like, ah, this is the violence that we're into. The the people who lose out every time, no matter where this is happening, are Jewish people. But so, and I think it's important to, to clarify also that the you know I've written before, and a lot of people talked about how anti-Semitism tends to work as a conspiracy theory, and some of the conspiracy theories about Jewish people, specifically Hasidic Jewish people in Crown Heights and areas of New York, are very specific in some ways to those areas, but are just as harmful and just as 
you know, almost moronic as kind of the great replacement con- anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that you hear from white nationalists. So talk us through this. Yeah. What's the what's the deal? The number of anti-Semitic attacks generally aimed at uh, Hasidic and Orthodox Jews has been going up for the last year. And if you read Tablet or Forward and a host of other Jewish publications, you would see that this has been a topic of a great deal of discussion among specifically Orthodox Jews, but not in the wider world because it's not white nationalists. It's not easier to be like, okay, this is going to happen to. I think that you know one of the things also is that the concern of white nationalist violence is you know that's an easy one for people to kind of parse out of why this is happening and what we could potentially do about it. But when it is, one, people, you know, Hasidic Jews who are being targeted, and it's they're being targeted by people of color, I think that that for a lot of people, people want to back away from that. People are much more loath to get into discussions of why that's taking place. And so you've seen a lot of kind of the discussions about the rise in in attacks on Jewish people, attacks on synagogues, um, and these attacks have been incredibly brazen. Um, There was, you know, there was a mass shooting in Jersey City that could have gone horrifyingly, even more horrifying than it would actually happen because of the amount of explosives that the pair behind the attack appeared to have on them. You know, there have been... uh, attacks on people wearing kippahs, you know, getting hit in the head with bricks, people being just attacked in the streets in parts of New York. And in suburban New York, this has come across, you know, it's been much less specifically violent, but the rhetoric about Hasidic Jews has been deeply harmful. And you're getting it from both the Republican Party in areas of New York who are describing Hasidic and Orthodox Jews as an invasive force, and from Democrats on, you know, on councils in Jersey City who are basically like, you know, essentially blaming Jewish people for the violence that Jewish people are encountering. And, you know, I think that when I spoke to uh, Tablet Magazine's Armin Rosen, he told me, you know, the reason why it's taken a long time for people outside of these circles to talk about this is because all these attacks were against people from Haredi Orthodox communities who are seen as seeing as being outside of the mainstream. They're seen as being not a part, you know, they're not, quote, you know, secular Jews, or they're not kind of people who are considered to be a part of the fabric of New York, which couldn't be further from the truth. But at the same time, there very much is a sense of, you know, kind of a permissive attitude of harassment or how people talk about the Orthodox community. Um, The idea that, you know, they're trying to, you know, plot a takeover of different counties and pose a date. You know, I'm quoting from a video posted by the Rockland County Republican Party saying that you know, already Jews pose a danger to our homes, our families, our schools, our communities, our water, our way of life. And, you know, you're seeing, you know, as I mentioned, a member, a Jersey City Board of Education trustee who talked about, you know, Jewish brutes of the Jewish community who were trying to buy the homes of people of color. And so there's a sense of like, this is a harassment that's taking place. And then the people who are being harassed are being blamed for their own harassment in a way that seems anathema to me, but it's it's happening uh, uh, you know across the political spectrum in New York. So let's draw a slight distinction, right? because so so one thing, the, the issue with these um sort of uh, so some of these republicans in the in the excerpts, right? This is fundamentally, as so much in life is, a, a zoning issue, um which is that, you know, Haredi communities have large numbers of children. And consequently, they have a consistently uh, pro-development uh, politics and a sort of, old-fashioned, fairly tightly controlled uh, political machine dynamics. Uh, And so they are very effective in places where uh, many of them live in getting zoning adjustments made that allow for more house building, um, which, as anyone who has ever listened to me in any forum knows, (laughs) I I agree with that, but is frequently opposed by other people. So this, it becomes a weird thing where like, I I would say it is not a conspiracy theory to believe that if a large number of Haredi people move into your town, there will be a subsequent move on their part to try to get zoning laws made more permissive for them to build large, densely packed houses. And corollary that that because of the average size of a Haredi family versus, you know, your typical affluent 
exurban family, that the long-term political demographics of that area could change accordingly. Yes, and and per the whole rhetoric of every zoning fight everywhere, like it, it will change the character of the neighborhood um, if it becomes a, a, a largely hereditary neighborhood. Now, I don't think any of that is bad, but it's not loopy. Right, you know, it's to, just to, that it gets very difficult because you're talking about, you know, a... Because A, it is... It's laid over this idea that the character of the neighborhood is changed by having a group that is visually distinct yes. and very self-contained, and also the whole like long-standing tropes of anti-Semitism. Thing. Absolutely, I, I just I just would say that as someone who has followed like any zoning fight in any American town on any subject, like there's this huge battle in a town called Weston, Massachusetts, that has nothing at all to do with Jews, um, but just uh, a developer wants to build as he has his right under Massachusetts's affordable housing law, an apartment building. And there's like incredible paranoia, stop the Western monster, you know, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, all would just say, I think the like anti-heredi NIMBYs are bad people and they are uh, in the wrong <laughs> here. But I think that like the fundamental dynamic at work there is like the timeless NIMBY dynamic, right. which is a little different from like, the the black Hebrew Israelites yes. have a specific yeah. like a like a very specific view here. Yes. And like what what is it? So it, it's complicated. Some you know, I black Hebrew Israelites, they have there's kind of an a center of black Hebrew Israelites, and there's also the fringes. And the fringes are tend to be the more extremes. But a lot of this goes back to a conspiracy theory and an untruth, I should say, which is that and this, it, it's every time you kind of describe a conspiracy theory out loud, there's a sense of like, I can't believe I have to make this clear. But um, in 1991, Nation of Islam, as Louis Farrakhan, uh, put out a book entitled The Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews, in which Farrakhan argues that Jewish people were the real force behind the slave trade and in a later volume, ultimately behind the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, a Ooh. notably pretty anti-Semitic hate group. But this idea, you know, there is a long and historic and storied relationship between African-Americans and Jewish Americans throughout the civil rights movement. But as um, Henry Louis Gates noted in a 1992 New York Times article in which he talks about this book as being one of the most sophisticated instances of hate literature yet compiled, the idea of kind of fomenting ethnic isolationism, of driving people apart to make people who, you know, like Farrakhan and others stronger within these communities has been, as the efforts have proven incredibly effective in some areas. And so these conspiracy theories, and I did a little bit of looking around while I was writing this piece, and the degree to which you know, obviously you can't really judge, you know, how popular or widely held something is based on how widely held it is on the internet because the internet is real, but it's fungible. But the degree to which some of, you know, the, you know, when people have been doing interviews in Jersey City and elsewhere after these attacks, they, you know, when people are talking to folks, they're like, well, you know, the attacks are terrible, but it doesn't get at, you know, you know, Jewish people being behind this conspiracy theory, behind this conspiracy theory. And so I think it's important that, you know, there is no, I, I you know, I've seen this in a couple of other pieces uh, written on the subject of the idea of like, you know, oh, this is, you know, complex relationships between African-Americans and Jewish people. I'm like hitting people over the head with hammers is not complex. That's not a complex, you know, hate crimes are not a complex relationship. What's happened here is that conspiracy theories that are just as virulent and dangerous as the same conspiracy theories that hold that, like, Jews control the government are have taken hold in some pockets of communities in New York and elsewhere. And they've been furthered by people for their own political interests. And you, know, there's been a lot of discussion about specifically black Hebrew Israelites or some of these specific groups, but it doesn't have to come with membership in a group to be holding these views, to believe that Jewish people are somehow the er white person and are somehow, you know, they are responsible for white racism and that they are secretly, you know, and it actually goes back to some of the conspiracy theories that we've talked about when we talk about George Soros, mm -hmm. that one of the kind of 
traditional anti-Semitic tropes is not that Jewish Americans, unlike African Americans, are subhuman. It's that they're secretly in charge of everything. And so the same kind of idea that has that George Soros is secretly getting immigrants into the United States to subvert whiteness is kind of the same idea that Jewish people are secretly taking homes from African Americans to uphold whiteness. And somehow Jewish people are both, you know, are the enemy and also the ultimate superpower in this entire conspiratorial rendering. But I think it's also, you know, when we're talking about um, nimbyism or talking about, you know, the specifics of these challenges that are happening in communities in counties in New York and elsewhere, you know, nimbyism has never led anyone to take a machete to anyone. And that's what that's what's happened here in several cases. And I think there was a whole dust up um, at National Review about this kind of this idea of like, I think that when people talk about hate crimes and we see this occasionally, um, I remember uh, when Matthew Shepard was murdered in um, 1998. And I remember some of the writings about it were just kind of like, well, you know, like, Obviously, that's terrible, but maybe this is a moment where we should recognize maybe gay rights, like, it's not their time yet. And I'm like, is that what you're getting from this? Is that what you're getting? Like, whoa, whoa, it's somehow the gay person's fault that they were strung up on a fence and left to die? And I think that it's really important to say here that, like, it is whatever is happening, there's no housing crisis that is an adequate explanation or reason for people getting hit over the head with bricks for outwardly expressing the religious beliefs. So I think that a lot of this touches in various ways on the kind of or question of like the the flip way to put this is are Jews actually white? But the less flip way to put it is, look, you know, our, our, our we are an ethnic group that has defined ourselves for thousands of years as being a minority wherever we are. Uh bracketing the entire Israel thing for a second, because frankly, a lot of this, the dynamics that's going on here are much older than the state of Israel and have persisted despite it, you know, despite its creation. And given that there are, you know, not every minority is necessarily a dispossessed minority, but many of them are. And so when you look at, you know, Jews as a community, are you looking at them as kind of a model minority that has managed to succeed, that has maybe taken it more than its share of the resources? Or are you looking at them as, you know, a people who have constantly had to defend themselves against not being, you know, not being the norm? And that also deals with the different question of kind of heretic communities, because I think a lot of people who have been raised in you know, secular pluralist America in the last few generations understand religion as an individual thing, right? Like whether or not it's a matter of, whether you're thinking of it as a matter of what do you believe, what is your faith, or whether you're thinking of it as what is your level of observance, that's an individual choice. And it doesn't necessarily prevent you from interacting with other people of right. other faiths and other levels of observance. The the Heredi interpretation has been that it's very important, you know, it's 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 a closer analog to like an Amish community than anything else insofar as the idea that it's very important to be hyper visibly different and to remain, you know, connected to each other and hold yourself apart from the rest of the world as much as possible is a strong, you know, that's that's certainly one way to think about how do we persist as a Jewish people, right. you know, in a world where very few people are like us. But it means that it's a little bit tricky for secular Jews, A, because many of us aren't people who in an ultra-Orthodox interpretation would even count as Jewish. Right. Uh, and who are, you know, not seen, you know, and and who we know wouldn't necessarily, it's it's hard to express solidarity with a group that you know wouldn't necessarily express solidarity with you if the tables are turned. And I think that makes it difficult, both in the kind of intra-Jewish politics of what do we do with this as Jews, and to understand that when we're talking about the history of Black-Jewish relations, there's definitely the kind of unfortunately lost or minimized history of, like, Black-Jewish alliance in the civil rights movement. But it's also important to recognize that the people who, you know, it wasn't like, it's not like the ultra-Orthodox were the ones who were standing up there, that they've had a notion of... Uh, how to protect yourself as a community that is very different from that. And so the the kind of solidarity impulses are running at cross purposes to each other. Yeah, let's take a break and then talk about partisan politics. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Part of what's going on here, I think, you know, uh, Dara was, was mentioning sort of tensions inside inside. The, the Jewish community, but there's there's like a larger split, I would say, over the like discursive meaning of anti-Semitism in America today, right? Whereas to Jewish Americans whose sympathies are generally more on the left, and these are people who typically are less uh, observant, um, typically less hawkish on Israel-related matters, typically vote for Democrats, right? It is, like, obvious that the problem of anti-Semitism in America is that you have um, a rising tide of white nationalist groups, a sort of general theme that racism and ethnic nationalism is bad for the Jews. And so even though Donald Trump has this Jewish son-in-law and daughter, he is, in fact, a very threatening figure, right? A, a symbolic menace to the Jews who is trying to define American identity in a more blood and soil manner. And that this is, you know, part of a, an alarming trajectory uh, throughout the world. And then you can talk about Viktor Orban. You can talk about figures on the European far right and like how this is all bad. These right. Which is, which is, I think, theories. the more productive way to put it. There's also, I think, an extent to which the master narrative of the Holocaust is very, very, very relevant to 21st century Jewish identity. And so there's a certain extent to which anything that moves in that direction leads some Jews to go, we know how this ends. We are inevitably victims here. Right. Just based on that rather than based on any kind of real world analog and or then, rather current, you know, 21st century analog. And then you have this contrary narrative, which is that, no, like the threat to Jews in America and in the world comes from the left, that it is left-wing groups who express sort of limitless solidarity with Palestinian nationalism, no matter how violent it becomes. It's the left that is trying to incorporate Muslims into its political coalition, both in the United States and in Europe, and that that involves uh, taking a soft line on the most extreme anti-Jewish sentiments that are out there. It's Ilhan Omar who is kind of dancing around with the so-called anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, it's Russia Tlaib who is just expressing incredibly vehement uh, hostility to, to Israel and to Israeli policy. And that it's— Or it's like Jeremy Corbyn, who in the service of class politics says things about capitalists that have generally been recognized as anti-Semitic tropes. And like, how do you deal with the— uh -huh 
you know, how do you deal with a resurgent socialism when anti-capitalist and anti-Jewish politics have historically been intertwined? And it's it's Tamika Mallory and, yeah. and the Women's March and Louis Farrakhan. And here, the flip, right, the, the, the Jared and Ivanka of this narrative is Bernie Sanders. Right. Right, who is Jewish, but is also at the intersection of all these left-wing trends that more conservative American Jews don't like. And then one, if you're me, you want to say against that, like, no, look, like the potential first Jewish president can't be the leading avatar of anti-Semitism in in America. But you have these contrary takes, right? David Harsanyi wrote uh, in in December um, in a... uh, in, in National Review, you know, this piece, that it, it goes through the sort of list of second-order associations, but I would say, like, the, the thesis is fundamentally that Sanders is not actually Jewish. Um, it says, you know, he honeymooned in Moscow, not in Jerusalem. Um, and it talks about uh, Trotsky makes, makes the revolutions and the Bronsteins pay the bills. That was the rejoinder of Moscow's chief rabbi after Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky rebuffed his request for assistance, explaining that he was not a Jew, but rather an international man of socialism, right? And, and I think that the, the view that you see in that world is that, look, like, if you, if you do what Sanders has done, right, and you renounce both, like, religious observance and Israeli nationalism, as concepts, and you affiliate yourself with a global, secularist, socialist ideology, exactly as Dara was saying, like, you have put yourself outside the circle of solidarity, is is that view. And so some of that is like, we don't need to protect you, right? Again, like George Soros, when you're targeted for certain kinds of, of tropes. But it also means that you don't get to wield Jewish identity as a defense against the, the these The fun these sidebar kind of here, of course, is that, like, in the American context, yes, there's definitely like, I think there are two very important points to be made here. One is that the hypervisibility of Haredi communities does not map onto other Jews. Like I've, yes. there's a, I, I think that there is a certain concern among more secular Jews. Like, oh, can I wear a Star of David in public? Oh, can I wear a kippah on my way to the synagogue? And like, there's a spectrum there, but. Very few things that the average non-Orthodox Jew is going to do in public are going to be as obvious a mar- and, and permanent a marker of Jewishness as what Haredi like as what Haredi communities go through every day. And so the idea that you're going to be randomly targeted for a hate crime because you're wearing a Star of David around your neck is yeah, like like not a supported piece of jewelry by what we so have right now. Right. The other thing going on here, though, is that while the idea that Bernie Sanders isn't meaningfully Jewish because he has personally eschewed religious observance may make sense on a certain logical level. It's also true that, frankly, a lot of the country still associates New York stereotypes with Jewish stereotypes. I say this as somebody who, like, grew up to a, a, you know, grew up in the Midwest to a father who had ever, you know, who had spent decades in New York as a Jew and the extent to which after 30 years in Cincinnati— uh, he's still regarded as an like as a New Yorker cannot be super disentangled from the fact that he's vis- visibly Jewish. So the idea that Bernie Sanders is like has successfully in- inoculated himself against any supposed anti-Semitic violence because he's not doing the things that people hate Jews for doesn't really track. I mean, look, I agree. Like to to me. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I almost feel the opposite of this, right? That, like, the Haredi community is uh, an interesting phenomenon, but is, like, not actually participating in, like, what normal people associate with Jewish culture Correct. in America, right? But like, I think like that that's wo- the... there are no Woody Allen movies about, like, Haredi suburban but, whoa, real whoa, whoa, estate development. I think that, no, there, there isn't. There is, there is, however, the scene in Annie Hall where he is concerned that that's how her family sees yes, him, right? Yes. Like it's always the thing in the back of the head of secular Jews right, right. that we are going to be associated with them, even though they wouldn't want to be associated with us. And there are very heavy irony quotes going on here. Uh, I know that the podcast is not a visual medium, but like it's this. We got is, an episode with no charts, and you you go in with with air quotes. with air quotes. <laughs> Look, it's a it's an episode about Jews. Of course, we're going to have a lot of irony layers. Mm. I think that though it's important to recognize because I, I think that there's been the sense of like 
um, and you see this on the on the right and on the left of kind of like, no, our anti-Semitism makes sense. Sure. Our anti-Semitism yes. is based as like, no, 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 ours is reasonable. Our anti like even the argument that I see occasionally from conservatives of like, why do Jews still vote for Democrats? Like this idea of like they need to get off the Jewish democratic plantation of sorts and start thinking towards their own interests. And this idea of being kind of Jewish in name only. Or like that you're not, do, you know, if you do not hold these particular political positions or these particular things, you're not the right kind of Jewish person. Right. This is but where the politics you, of Israel have gotten really toxic. Yeah. Because and then, but then also on the on the left, you see the kind of this idea of like, well, you know, we know what anti-Semitism looks like and it, only, it looks like Richard Spencer and that's it. So the people, you know, the Corbinites screaming at people in, in the UK to go back to Israel, like, no, 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 that's not anti-Semitism. We're defending you from the real anti-Semites who are over there. And it's, but neither anti-Semitism is better or more helpful or less dangerous. There's a sense, I think that there's a sense that like, if we can just keep going back and forth in the world's most stupid tennis match over who's anti-Semitism is reasonable or reasoned that you know, we'll find a solution to this problem. But at the same time, like the people who are being subjected to anti-Semitic violence have been largely excised from this conversation. Right. Like, I mean, this is a- Orthodox and Haredi Jewish people, you know, the folks who I talked to from my piece, they're very much of a sense of like, they're aware that a lot of people are talking about them mm-hmm. or talking about where, you know, how many children they have and their school districts and their vaccination policies and their, you know, where they want to move and whether or not that, you know, what their practices are. But people are not talking to them. They're kind of just being foisted upon different political but groups you- and not allowed to express, you know, not allowed to talk about what it's like to be targeted for, again, religious practice. But you really see in the Trump era, right, a divide among Jews between a sort of consociational and individualistic concepts of Jewish interests, right? So that in the in the consociational view, right, Jews just are a minority in America, right? And we're going to have to suck it up and deal with it. But we have Israel as an exit option. And supporting Israel is very important, right? Because like, fundamentally outside of Israel, we're always going to be a put-upon minority, right? And that this is parallel to, Jane, as as you've talked about frequently, the sort of black conservative ideology, right? That, like, you give up on assimilation and true equality, right? But you ask for the special rights as a religious community. So you are naturally aligned with bakeries that don't want to serve same-sex marriages, things like that, right? To say, look, we are a religious community defined by religious observance. All religious communities get certain corporate rights that we will demand. And we have a state, like, located elsewhere, but that is allied with the United States and that we back, right? Then you have, Although, a, of course, the fact that many ultra-Orthodox Jews do not. Don't back Israel, but <laughs> but but they, but they, but like, like the Amish, right? Yeah. Who also generally vote Republican, right? And sometimes I think like liberals get confused by that because like, how, why would a minority group do it? But it, it's a religiously defined community-oriented group with, with a corporate identity. Then you have the other view, right? Corporate, not in the like business sense, yes, but yes. in the like. Collective. Right. Collective. Then you have like Jewish liberation as individualism, which is like, this is America. Like, everybody can do whatever they want, right? Like, we're all free and equal here. And we believe in globalism and we believe in international human rights norms. Um, And when you see somebody, somebody complaining on television that you're not allowed to say Merry Christmas anymore is like not a brick to your head. But that is viewed to like individualism minded Jews as like very threatening. Right. That it is this like effort to define American identity as fundamentally Christian and to take offense at like banal efforts to be more inclusive. Right. And you look at that and you're like, like, what is this? Like, how could these people be like so amped up about Israel that they're like throwing in with this Christian menace? Right. That you're like going with these evangelical preachers and being like, I'm going to turn over the judiciary to you guys. Right. And that's like very bad because it's pursuing a liberal integrationist dream. And that's the version of Jewish identity and the version of Black identity that was the foundation of the Civil Rights Movement Alliance, right? It is a liberal integrationist claim in which, like, we are going to, like, 
all it was just uh, Martin Luther King Day recently and like like all the stuff in his speeches right like that very much speaks to a segment of the Jewish community as well as to the black community because it's about the idea that we can like on a human level like all be equal right and, but that's different and from it's, it's notion of difference as something that is inherent but not necessarily defining appeals a lot to people who want to claim Jewish identity and don't necessarily want to follow all 613 of the commandments in Torah. Right, because we're people, right? Yeah. But I I think the other thing going on here is just there's a broader conflict between left and right very long-standing as to what counts as, uh, like, what counts as violence, what counts as, like, an abuse of power that we should be worried about. And the left generally is much more inclined to think about things like structural violence and, you know, show concern about ideology, not because it's, like, inherently bigoted, but because it's being expressed by people in power. The idea that there is no such thing as reverse racism is, like, a very important, uh, you know, it's kind of a very important key to this kind of thinking The problem is not what's in your head. The problem is how what's in your head gets expressed through the broader world. So that kind of what we need to be concerned about is what the dominant force thinks of us is, you know, does direct your attention in particular ways, whereas the right is generally of the opinion that, no, you don't call things that are, you don't call things violence that aren't violence. Actual violence is violence. And so there must necessarily be more attention paid to people getting bricks thrown at them than to, you know, diffuse concerns about whether Jews are still considered to be core, you know, Americans at their core. I think that, you know, usually these arguments don't play out when there is an actual literal spate of violence going on. And so it can be very easy for the left to ignore the, you know, like, it's one thing to say, no, no, other things can be violence too. Right. But when we're talking about... Actual. Yeah, it's... And I think, you know, fundamentally, we we keep toggling among different types of anti-Semitism and different types of, like, you know, of, of fears that different types of Jews have, because it's really hard to talk about this as a unified phenomenon. Like, you have to go into fairly deep history lessons and talk about the relationship between anti-usury laws and the rise of the Jewish capitalist to really understand just how much of these are, just how much of these various types of anti-Semitism really do have the same origin, because they're being expressed by people who don't have any kind of intellectual contact with each other in the 20. First century. And so I'm not even sure how useful it is to think about them as the same phenomenon, other than that, as you keep coming back to, Jane, like Jews are the victims. And so this has to start from a premise of how do we protect the people who are being victimized? Right. And I think that there is also a sense, um, I think, you know, and I've encountered this while writing about this a lot, is that there's a sense of self-protectiveness on both sides, again, about trying to make, you know, my anti-Semitism makes sense. And I remember, you know, back in 2015, during one of the uh, Republican debates, Ann Coulter tweeted, uh, how many fucking Jews do these people think there are in the United States? Because she was like, we talk way too much about Israel, like, this is a whole thing. You know, it's almost like, basically tweeting and saying things that for, you know, had she been of a different political stripe, people may have construed as being anti-Semitic. But there, she got defenses from some people um, on the right as being like, well, you know, she's she's a Republican and she's good on Israel, so it's okay this time. And you see the same thing on, you know, some folks on the left where even bringing up the fact that Louis Farrakhan is insane and a rabid anti-Semite is like, no, 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 but his anti-Semitism comes from things that make sense to us. And it just, I think it's important to be like, you know, the people who are being victimized here are Jewish Americans, particularly people who are Orthodox Jewish Americans, and they are being victimized across the political spectrum by conspiracy theories that don't make any sense in any way. And I think that it's important that, like, it's not a tennis ball that we can keep pack- passing back and forth. It's a really you know, scourge of actual lived violence that's taking place here. But I do think that there is a, a unifying element, right, to the disparate anti-Semitisms of the modern world, right, which is the idea that a transnational ethnic community is fundamentally suspect. Yes. Right, like like by its nature, 
right? And so, like— Especially, like, you know, and, and that has a, a different valence when it's a transnational community that doesn't have a nominal homeland versus one that does. Sure. And, and you know, we don't have a Roma community in the United States, at least a substantial one. So, like, anti-Roma prejudice is not a real phenomenon in American life. But in Eastern and Central Europe, where uh, Jewish and Roma communities used to co-occur, very similar, um, you know, hostility exists because it's a similar phenomenon of people who are declining to fit into the sort of like modernist concept of how the world should be arranged, right? And then in, in, in the Jewish case, you have, I mean, people write whole books about medieval anti-Jewishness and how it relates to modern anti-Semitism, uh, th- things like that. But it is a, you know, in America, we have sort of conflicting ethnic nationalisms so that Louis Farrakhan is sort of like the opposite, quote unquote, of like a neo-Nazi or a white nationalist. But there's obviously a similar like right, worldview right. just coming from different. Right. You know. Yeah. And I think that there's that, I think that that's something that gets challenging because, again, you know, one of the difficult things about talking about politics is that the left-right dichotomy is very helpful, but it's also frequently very wrong. And then people, you know, but then people buy into it. Like, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that Louis Farrakhan is, you know, close to people in the Democratic Party. And Louis Farrakhan also believes that Jews made me gay. Right. So, and I'm like, please, I want the explanation yeah. of how that fits in but here. It, the other, but that's because Democrats the, are The other thing tent. that's useful here is like, you know— Maybe be a slightly it's, smaller It's tent. been pointed out, like, I think I think even Richard Spencer has said that, like, uh, that there is a certain affinity between white and black nationalists because they both want to just live separately and peacefully. And the idea that separatism— I don't, I don't believe things. Richard Spencer about that. No, oh, yeah, no, I, I think, I like, but I, but I think that the idea that separatism can be a deconflictual thing is something that a lot of people in their heart of hearts actually believe. It's at the root of a lot of, like, residential self-segregation, right? But exactly what we're seeing right now with Haredim is it shows exactly how wrong that is, right? Because even a group that wants to keep to itself, that isn't necessarily trying to evangelize or impose on anyone else, simply by its nature of kind of wanting to live in you know, of, of wanting to live in a society is going to pose threats to other people, no matter how much it, you know, it's trying to keep to itself. And pluralism isn't really something you opt into, and it's not necessarily something you can opt out of either. And so thinking about separatists as people who are kind of absenting themselves from the social contract is exactly what leads us to this kind of, well, they brought it upon themselves. Let's take a break. Do a white paper. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Okay, I I bring this one up not so much because it's important as because I thought it was kind of a funny thing to study. Uh, But Daniel Hamermesh, Robert Krosno, and Rachel Gordon wrote, Oh, Youth and Beauty. Children's Looks and Children's Cognitive Development. Uh, So what they did was they looked at a couple different um, sort of uh, cohort studies of children as they went through school and, you know, sort of what grades they got, how long they stayed in school, things like that, uh, proxy for for cognitive development. And they also used uh, video clips and and pictures of these kids, and they had panels of undergraduates uh, rate how good-looking they are. Um, And they found that there's a strong correlation between – 
kids who are rated as attractive and kids who do well in school and kids who go into school longer. And then they try to explore a bunch of different reasons sort of why that might be. And they find that sort of most of the stuff you might think of is kind of in there. Like the teachers say that they like the better looking kids more, uh, but that doesn't fully account for it. It actually accounts for only a small share of it. Um, they find that, you know, moms of the better looking kids on average say that they are treated a little bit better by other children. But again, it's small, right? So there's a sort of unexplained residual here where the better looking children do better in school um, and they don't really know why. Um, It might just be uh, co-correlated genetic material, early childhood nutrition, you know, gamma rays uh, that give you a cute face uh, also help your brain. It could be some unknown um, third instrument, right, where people, you know, they can't control for everything, right? But so there is some kind of dark matter out there, which is causing the better looking kids to do better in school, better looking at least as rated by a convenience sample of college students. Yeah, uh, I, right, which the, I guess the, is how we do our research. The, the, the <laughs> rating system that they met they the methodology is using thin slices of video approximately 7 to 10 seconds of duration face on the chi- focused on the child's face and body. And then, um, yeah, the, I, I have a several so more questions it's about It's very that funny piece. to imagine three, three professors at uh, quality universities <laughs> saying what we need is a bunch of college students to look at old video clips of five-year-olds and tell us which ones are the cute ones. Right. So they do uh, some comparative work here with a UK data set where it's the teachers who are being asked to rate the attractiveness of children, which like they treat as a somewhat compromised variable and I actually think is much more relevant because whether kids who, whether undergrads who are roughly the same age as the kids in the videos are now think that those people are attractive is like not nearly as relevant as whether as a child you seem attractive to the relevant authoritative adults in your life. Like anybody who's read the Elena Ferrante Neapolitan Quartet can understand that like the kinds of children who appeal to adults and the kinds of children who appeal to other children can be very, very different. Or anyone Um, who's ever been the kid who gets along well with adults. Oh my gosh, yes. I was that kid and it went just how you probably think it did. So So I think that, you know, but there is, but they do in this comparative data set like show relatively similar results. So it's not exactly like we're dealing with two totally different populations of kids here. But, you know, it is important to note that like we're not talking about a huge effect here. The, This is coming from a literature that has, you know, one of the streams of literature feeding into this started with, well, to what extent can we isolate performance as a function of teacher quality? And the answer to that has been, eh, not a ton. And the effect here of of good-lookingness is lower than the effect of having a really good teacher. So we're kind of tinkering around the edges here a little bit. They do note, like, repeatedly in this paper that the really, really persistent strong correlations are, you know, parental income and ethnic group and that kind of thing that it's that we're looking at something that, you know, it's it's interesting insofar as it's dark matter, but it's not like the difference between a successful and an unsuccessful educational career is whether you're super cute. Right. I, I think the relevance is less actually to the educational literature than to the literature on the economic rewards to being good looking. Right. Which is that like we have studies that show that better looking people earn more money. And one thing that this is showing is that like that is partially explicable in terms of better looking people doing better in school and having more years of of educational attainment. I mean, there's like a there's like a parallel thing, right, where if you if you instrument um, like height and earnings. Right. You'll see that tall men uh, earn more money than shorter men, uh, which is like an interesting fact and can lead people to spin out all kinds of takes about, you know, like height bias and, and prejudice and things like that. It turns out that when you control for a bunch of things, including like school performance, socioeconomic background, that that tends to go away. Right. And that it's just a sort of coincidence <laughs> That taller people also have, like, other background characteristics that you would associate with earning more money, which is different from a world in which we are finding that employers show, like, large bias in favor of paying tall people more, right? So you're seeing a somewhat similar thing here. If you you learn that, like, kids who did well in school have better jobs— 
Like, that's not that surprising, where if it's, like, better-looking people are getting paid more, that that sounds like an employment discrimination story. Right. I mean, the unfortunate thing here is there is, even though they are controlling for, like, parental income and all of that, there is a question here about to what extent is this just a nutrition thing? Um, They are, in the UK data, exempting uh, children whose teachers describe them as unkempt or dirty Uh, from the data set because it doesn't somehow reflect on their looks. Whereas, like, it seems to me that that actually is exactly the way in which a teacher would respond to a student's looks. Like, either they look bedraggled and like they're not being well cared for, or they look like they and their family are investing some time in their appearance. So it would be interesting to know how much of this is just a reflection of, okay, are you coming from a family that puts an emphasis on presentation on manners that is feeding you well enough that you can then like have the the cognitive capacity? Or are you being, you know, lightly neglected in ways that might be partially but not wholly explicable by social social class and might show up in interesting ways even beyond how much money your parents are making can spend on you? Agreed. The other interesting thing here is that they show that when you look at really little kids, uh, boys and girls are rated equally. And they say that when you look at adults, men and women are rated about equally. But that uh, like old kids like or like 15-year-olds, um, the, the average boy was at the 39th percentile and girl at the 64th percentile. Right, so which, yeah. which also speaks to the extent to which this is about socialization and yeah. how right. like even, even in a 21st century world where I think – there are higher expectations on men to, to yeah. attend to their appearances. That has not historically it been has the not case. It has not trickled down boys. to the 15-year-old boys <laughs> no. among us. And if you're a 15-year-old boy listener, I am with you. Stay strong. <laughs> All right. Okay, thanks, guys. Um, that was that's not normally where we end up with the weeds, but uh, you know, hopefully yeah. we can uh, uh, hey, branch out. The politics of solidarity, man. Exactly. It's true. Branch out into new things. Um, thanks, as always, uh, to everybody out there listening. Thanks to Malachi Brodus, our engineer, Jackson Beerfeld, our producer, and the weeds will be back on Friday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. 